0: Well, good morning. We are in this series walking through the book of Exodus, and we've entitled this series Exodus. Um, He draws us out to draw us in. And the first half of this book is about how God is going to draw his people out of slavery in Egypt. And then the second half is how he takes them to this mountain, the mountain of God, to draw them in to worship. It starts by them building stuff for Pharaoh. It ends by them building a tabernacle so that they can worship the Lord. And we're going to continue that story today. Last week, we saw that God was drawing this little boy out of the Nile. His name was Moses. That's what his name means, is that he was drawn out. So God drew this boy out of the Nile and miraculously saved him so that this man could grow up, this boy could grow up to save his people. But this ironic thing happens that once this boy grows up and he goes out to save his people, they reject him. And so Moses was saved, then Moses was rejected, and then Moses was exiled. And he murders this man, he runs away, and he goes to this place called Midian, and that's where we pick up the story today. Today, we're going to see again that what man meant for evil by rejecting Moses, God meant for good. And he's going to work through this circumstance to draw Moses back into himself for worship and for mission. So the next two weeks, we're gonna be in Exodus chapter three and four. This is really Kind of one scene, and we're going to look at it in two parts. Today, we're going to try to draw out the main theme from these chapters, and then next week, we'll get really specific about some implications that uh, it has for us. So, let's jump in. Exodus chapter 3, if you have a Bible. If you do not, there's a Bible in front of you, uh, page 48. Moses it says, was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law. So Moses was a shepherd. And this event where God shows up to him happens while he's just at work. Sometimes ordinary places are where God does extraordinary things. Moses just shows up for work this day. He's taking the sheep out and God is going to meet him. But this little phrase, he was shepherding the flock, not only suggests that Moses was just doing something ordinary, just doing his job, but it's also connecting Moses with some other famous people from the story so far. If you remember, the book of Exodus is episode two in a five-part series, and in the first episode, the book of Genesis, there were a lot of shepherds. In fact, basically all the good guys in the book of Genesis were shepherds. Uh, Abel was a shepherd. Um, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, all shepherds. These are the good guys of the story. And Moses now is a shepherd. He was in the palace with Pharaoh. Now he's a shepherd. It's as if this story wants us to see that Moses now is also going to be one of the good guys that God is going to use for his people. So he's shepherding in Midian, and he leads the flock to the far side of the wilderness. And he came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Another name for this is Mount Sinai. He goes to this mountain, and while he's there, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. So an angel of the Lord appears. An angel of the Lord just refers to somebody who's going to speak on behalf of God. This is God's presence being manifest here. It's God's presence becoming known. And so Moses is with his sheep, and all of a sudden an angel of the Lord appears, but here's how it appears. It appears in a flame of fire in a bush. Now, fire is a picture of God's presence throughout the Bible in Genesis chapter 15, God shows up to Abraham in this flaming pot in a torch. Eventually, God is going to show up to the nation of Israel in Exodus as fire, and he's going to lead them with fire. And here, God's showing up to Moses with fire. But it's interesting. It's not just a flame. It's a flame that's in a bush. And... What's interesting about that is that the bush was on fire, it says in verse 2, but it was not consumed. So somehow, this thing that should burn up is burning, but it's not burning up. It's just on fire. And the point that we'll eventually see is that God has power over nature. He can do Weird supernatural stuff because he has power over natural stuff. And if that's an idea that you struggle with, if the supernatural is something that you struggle with, then just uh, hold on for a few weeks because we'll deal with that later. I'm not going to deal with it here because, just to be honest, this isn't even in the top 10 craziest things that I believe as a Christian that God can do, okay? So we're just not going to deal too much with that. But the point is, God's got power over nature. It's on fire, but it's not being consumed. And if that's interesting to you, it was also interesting to Moses. And that's why the next verse says, so Moses had to go over and look and see what this thing was because he thought, why isn't the bush burning up? And so he walks over. Verse four, when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, he answered. And now God is going to tell him that this place where you are, where this strange thing is happening, it's holy ground. That means this is a place where I am. God is here. And so, because this is holy ground, Moses, there are two things that you have to do. Verse five, do not come closer. That's the first thing. Because God is holy and he's here, this ground is holy. This ground is set apart. This ground is different. This ground is unique from the ground you were on. So stop, don't come any closer and remove the sandals from your feet for the place where you're standing is holy ground. God says, don't come any closer and remove your sandals. In other words, you really shouldn't be here the way that you are on your own. Then he continued. God says, I am the God of your father the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. God is saying that the God that you've heard about, the God of the family that you were born into, the God of the family who's being oppressed in Egypt, the God of the family that you, at one time in your life, 40 years ago, thought that you were going to maybe rescue, the same God who appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's who's talking to you now, God says. And when Moses hears that, when he recognizes that he can't come any closer and he has to take off his sandals because he's, he's in the presence of God, this place is holy because God is here, when that dawns on him, He hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. There is a fear and a reverence that comes over him. He recognizes, I am not worthy to be in this place. He recognizes the same God who was active with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And we heard these stories of God speaking to them and making promises that God is here now. And so he wants to hide his face the appropriate, appropriate response to God's holiness is reverence and fear. The bush is not being consumed, but God is a consuming fire. Without a mediator, we cannot safely enter God's presence. And that is why when they come back to this mountain the next time, God is going to give them instructions on how to build a tabernacle so that they can mediate in his presence. But now that Moses is humbled by God, God is going to give this message verses 7 through 10, explain what's going to happen in the rest of this book. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people in Egypt and have heard them crying out because of their oppressors. I know about their sufferings. You see the three things that God says in that verse? He says, I've seen it, I've heard it, and I know. I've seen, I've heard, and I know. Look for just a minute at chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and with Jacob. And God saw the Israelites, and God knew. At the time, people questioned if any of that stuff was true. Now God is showing up to Moses to let him know so that he can let the people know it's all true. I do see what's happening. I have heard their prayers and I do know. And now, verse eight, not only am I aware, but I'm also taking action. Verse eight, and I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them from that land to a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. God says, not only am I aware, but I'm taking action. I'm, I'm coming down to rescue them. I'm gonna take them out of that land. In the same way, Moses, that I drew you out of the water, I'm gonna draw them out of this land and I'm gonna take them to the land I promised to give Abraham. I keep my promises, God is saying, and I'm gonna take them to this spacious land. It's a land that's got milk and honey, which to me, I'm like, what difference does that make? A land with milk and honey means in order to have milk, you got to have a lot of cattle. In order to have cattle, you got to have a lot of good land for them to graze. So the idea is this is a lush land. This is a land that's got lots of vegetation. They're going to have milk because they're going to be able to have a lot of cattle. And they're going to have honey. That is, there's going to be you know, lots of trees around for bees to be able to make honey. These are, this is just a little shorthand way of explaining that this is going to be like a garden kind of land. It's almost as if God is saying that what I designed for humanity originally in creation to be in a garden, when you go into this land... I'm going to be fulfilling what I wanted humanity to experience in the garden through my people in this land. By saving his people out of Egypt, he's going to be doing a new act of creation, putting his people in a new garden so that they can be with him. But there are some people living in this land right now, it's the territory of the Canaanites the Hethites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. We'll deal with that later. Verse nine. So because the Israelites cry for help has come to me, and I have also seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. Now here's his application to Moses. Listen, listen to verse 10. Therefore, Go. Therefore, go. I am sending you to Pharaoh so that you may lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Moses, I drew you out of the water. Now I'm sending you to Pharaoh so that you can lead my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. I drew you out to draw you in to worship, and now I'm sending you out on mission, God says to Moses. And this is God's pattern. God is going to save the Israelites by sending Moses. And this is how God works. God's mission is to save and his strategy is to send people. His mission is to save and his strategy is to send. This is how he works throughout the Bible. God would save humanity by sending Noah to build an ark. God would save all the families of the earth by sending Abraham into a new land. God would save Abraham's family from famine by sending Joseph ahead of them to Egypt. God will eventually save the Israelites by the hand of Moses. Once the people get into the land, they will not walk with him. And as a result, people will begin to overtake them. But God will save his people by sending judges like Deborah and Gideon and Samson to save them. Eventually, God will save a remnant of his people by sending prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah. God even wants to save the nations. And so he sends a prophet named Jonah to the city of Nineveh in the Assyrian Empire. After A lot of events in the Old Testament, the people are gonna be taken out of the land, just like Adam and Eve had to leave the garden. So God's people are going to leave this garden-like land. But even then, God will save his people by sending Esther and Ezra and Nehemiah. God saves by sending He saves his people by sending. And ultimately, God saves the world by sending his son, Jesus. Listen to the most famous verse in the Bible. John 3, verse 16. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. And now listen to verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Do you see the pattern? Do you see the pattern at work, even in the life of Jesus? God sent Jesus. Why? To save God is sending Moses to save. Jesus is the greater Moses. Jesus is sent not to rescue a physical people out of a physical realm or kingdom. Jesus has come to save a new people from a much worse master than Pharaoh. Listen to John 17, three. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. God sent his son, Jesus, so that you can be saved. We are born as slaves to a much harsher master than Pharaoh. We are born as slaves To sin. Sin destroys our lives, it destroys our identities, and it destroys the lives of those around us. But just as God saw the Israelites and heard their cries and knew, so God sees us, hears our cries, and knows. And the way we know that's true is that he has sent his son, Jesus. Jesus has literally come down to rescue. Verse eight, God says, I have come down in this flame. Jesus literally comes down to rescue. He says in John chapter three, No one has ascended except for the one who has descended, the son of man. Jesus has come to save. In his death, he paid the penalty of sin. In his resurrection, he overthrows sin's power. This is all foreshadowed in the Exodus. Just as the Passover lamb is going to be killed, as a sign of saying that, There is a substitute for sinners. So Jesus will be killed. And just as the people will pass through the Red Sea, the sea being a picture of death, Jesus passes through literal death. And in so doing, he makes it possible for us to be saved. Jesus is the one that God sends to save us. So if you're here today and you don't know him, come receive him today. Change your mind about your sin. It's not your friend. It is enslaving you change your mind about your sin and look to Jesus. Trust in him as the one who can free you from sin and free you from the penalty of sin. Trust in him. When Jesus saves us, he follows God's pattern and he sends us. When Jesus saves us, he sends us. Listen to John chapter 20, verse 21. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Now we could talk about that verse for a long time. We don't have time today. There's a lot there. But he says, as the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. You've been saved And now you're being sent, Jesus says. God draws us into worship and he sends us out on mission. Listen to Matthew chapter 28, verse 19. I mean, this sounds so similar to Exodus chapter three and what God says to Moses. Go therefore and make disciples, that is students, learners, followers, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. God saves by sending. His mission is to save. His strategy is to send. He was sending Moses to Egypt. He sent Jesus to the world. And now, as people who follow Jesus, he's also sending us to the world. We just sang that song, until you come, Lord, we will go. He intends to save others by sending us, just as he sent Moses and just as he sent Jesus. Listen to Romans chapter 10, verse 14 and 15. How then can they call on him they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. God draws his people out of slavery to draw them into worship and send them out on mission. That's how God works. Moses was not super passionate about this plan. <laughs> Through verse 9, Moses is tracking. He's like, all right, this is the God of Abraham. He's, gonna, he's come to save the people. Good. I was trying to work on that 40 years ago. It's good. And then he gets to verse 10, and everything changes for Moses. Verse 10 is where Moses is jarred. Verse 10 is where God says, this is what I'm going to do. Now go. You're going to do it. Listen to Moses' first question in verse 11. He asks five. We'll look at most of them next week. But listen to his first question in verse 11. But Moses asked God, who am I? who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Moses is overwhelmed by the size of this mission. Notice uh, in verse eight, God says, I'm gonna, I've come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians. Moses knows better than anyone the power of the Egyptians. And so he's going, all right, God, that's great. You're going to save them. That's good. You want me to do that? Who am I? I don't have that kind of power. He's overwhelmed by the size and the scope of this mission. He's also insecure because of the size of the mission that he's not gifted enough. We'll see that next week. We'll talk more about that next week. He's also insecure that he doesn't know enough. That's why his next question is, what's your name? And we'll talk about that in a second, but that's a theological question. He doesn't know enough theology to be used by God. That's what he feels. So he's overwhelmed by the size of the, the, and scope of the mission. He's insecure about his own gifts and his own th- knowledge and education. And have you been there before? Have you ever asked, okay, God, if that's what you want me to do, who am I? Maybe that's how you feel just about becoming a follower of Jesus to begin with. Because of your past, because of what you've done, you couldn't be uh, a God person. That's just not you, man. Maybe, you're someone who comes to church and you have faith, but for you to get more serious about your relationship with God, for you to actually become a person who reads the Bible or prays or joins a group, that feels like, ugh. that's just, that's not me. Who, ugh, who am I to do that? For you to lead your family to have spiritual conversations at dinner, ugh. that's not me. I just, I'm not good at that stuff and I, I don't know enough and uh, that seems so awkward and they know I'm not that way. And so I, I couldn't do that. I'm going to try to have a, a, a conversation about the Bible or what we're learning about God or some kind of spiritual topic with my family. Ugh, that's just, I, who am I to do that? Now, Pastor Nate, Great. When we're at his house, all right, he can talk about that stuff, okay? But maybe that's how you feel about serving in a ministry. You know, Dennis Tanner, that guy can teach those the kids the Bible. I mean, that guy, he's just so nice, and most people aren't that nice. And ah, oh, but who am I to do that? going to high school camp? Ugh. High schoolers are like scary, and they think I'm lame, and we couldn't do that. I mean, who am I? Like, some people can't, okay? Jim Munson, he's got no shame, all right? He just <laughs> does life. But like the rest of it, it's like, ugh. I am supposed to share the gospel with my neighbor or co worker or even best friend from high school. I'm not that guy. I can't do that. Insecurity is what Moses is wrestling with here, and many times it's what keeps us from going along with God's mission. And all of us are there from time to time. In fact, if I'm honest, this has been my experience here at Highlands. Um, I was sharing with, I've shared actually two different times this week um, because I've been, Studying this passage, and I'm just thinking about this stuff. And when I became the interim pastor in January, last January 2021, um, that was announced. And then I had to stand up and give like a little, you know, pep speech or whatever in the staff meeting after it was announced, okay? And there happened to be this other pastor consultant guy in the room that day. And after I shared my little thing, he called me and he said, "Um, you know, you sounded like an insecure and reluctant leader up there. (laughs) And I said, that's because I am. (laughs) I'm insecure and I don't really want to do this. That's how I felt. And what I love is this is kind of our our elders team story right now, too. Uh, We just had, um, we're kind of going around the room, kind of, you know, uh, giving our commitment about next year. And almost every person said some iteration of, you know, I don't want to be here forever, but we feel like God's asked us to do this right now. And to me, there's something about that spirit that's actually kind of refreshing. Most of my adult life, I've been super confident and thought, like, I know what to do, and I'll show up, and uh, it'll be fine. And even if I have to fake it, I'll wing it, and it'll turn out, all right? Because, I don't know, give me a microphone, and I'll figure it out, you know, in time. And uh, it'll be fine. And... You can't fake it the last two years. I mean, you just can't. Many times, one of the ways you'll know it's God calling you to do something is it will feel completely overwhelming to you. And like Moses, you'll ask, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring them out of Egypt. And God's answer to Moses' question is absolutely brilliant. He answers Moses by using a classic breakup line. He says, it's not you. It's me. It's not you. It's me. God and George Costanza invented this line. It's not you. It's me. Look at verse 12. He answered, but you're actually really gifted, Moses. Don't be so hard on yourself. He answered, Moses, people love you. You're so popular in Egypt. They'll definitely like you. He answered, I will certainly be with you. And this will be the sign that I am the one who sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you will all worship God at this mountain. Then Moses asked God, here's the theological question. If I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say, what's his name? What should I tell them? Now, there's a lot of questions about this. Um, I don't know why he's asking this question, to be honest. I think uh, maybe he's forgotten the name. Uh, In Genesis chapter 12, it says that Abraham built an altar and called on the name of the Lord. And so I don't necessarily think that this is the very first time that God is revealing his name. I think that maybe Moses has just forgotten it. Maybe there's a theological lapse here. He just doesn't have training. I don't know. It's possible that God reveals his name here to Moses, and then Moses writes the Pentateuch, and so then he goes back in and inserts the name. I don't know. Either way, Moses doesn't know something, and he's concerned about his lack of knowledge, his lack of theological understanding. And here's how God replies to him this time. Verse 14. God replied to Moses, I am who I am or I am the one who is or I am the one who will be. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, verse 15, say this to the Israelites, the Lord And right there, you see those all caps, the Lord? That's God's name. That's the third person of I am. This is God's name, Yahweh. Yahweh is just a transliteration of the Hebrew word there. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This Yahweh, this is my name forever. This is how I am to be remembered in every generation. A little Bible reading tip. When you read the Bible and you see the word Lord in all caps, you see that like in chapter 3 verse 2, the angel of the Lord appeared to him. Chapter 4 verse 1, did the Lord not appear to you? See how it's in all caps there? That's the Bible translator's way of letting you know this is God's name, Yahweh. God says, this is how I am to be remembered through all generations. Now this name, I am, I am the one who is, I am the one who will be. We could, I mean, man, this is just rich and we could talk about forever, but but here are some implications of this name. God is, by 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 God choosing the name I am, he's saying, he's letting us know that this God is eternal. He has no beginning and no end. He was, he is, and he always will be. He is the eternal, immortal God. This name also means that God is constant. He is the same Yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. He cannot be improved. He never needs to upgrade. He is flawless and complete effortlessly. It also tells us that God is the sustainer of all things. He is before all things and in him, all things hold together. He is the foundation of all existence. All things depend on him for life. Everything from galaxies to electrons and quarks, which apparently is the smallest substance. I don't know, some physicist here who works for Boeing could let me know. But a quark, the smallest particle that you can divide, you know, life down into. God sustains that and the galaxies. God is self-sufficient. As the foundation of all existence, God is completely independent and self-sustaining. He doesn't rely on anyone. He doesn't seek counsel from anyone. He doesn't need advice or strength or support from anyone or anything. He is entirely self-sufficient because he is life himself. I am, he says. I am who I am. I am the one who is. I will be what I will be. There is no one else like God who has measured out the waters in the hollow of his hand, who has marked off the heavens with the span of his hand, who has gathered the dust of the earth, who has weighed the mountains on a balance, who has directed his spirit, who gave him counsel, whom did he consult, who gave him understanding, who taught him, the paths of righteousness? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? The answer to all of these questions is there is no one else. He's God. I am who I am. Who did all of this stuff? In the words of Justin Bieber, if it's not you, God, it's not anyone. If it's not you, it's not anyone. And do you see the significance of God telling Moses that right here? God is showing Moses that confidence for this task, confidence for the mission that God is sending you on comes not from looking at yourself, but looking at him how are you going to overcome the power of the Egyptians, Moses? It's not you, bro. It's me, God says to Moses. Look at me. I am going to be with you. Confidence for your task. Confidence for you to do what God is calling you to do comes not from looking at yourself, but from looking at God, who is Jesus. In John chapter 8, verse 57, the Jews replied, you aren't 50 years old yet and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus equates himself with God right here after this, they pick up stones to try to kill him. And this Jesus who is God, is the one who is sending you. He has come to save you and he's sending you and listen to the promise he gives you. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. God's mission is to save. God's strategy is to send. He has sent his son Jesus to lead a new exodus that you are invited to be a part of. And he is sending us to go to our neighbors and to go to the nations. But it's not about us. It's about him. And he's given us a tool to help us remember. It's called the Lord's Supper. When you came in today, you should have received... Uh, One of these. I grabbed the hourglass kind here, so I'm going to have to figure out how to use this. Yes, it's pretty simple. If you will begin to take that out, we'll take this together in just a minute. But this is a sign or a symbol that God has given us to remember his faithfulness. When you begin to doubt God's love, or God's presence. Look to Jesus. This bread is a picture of Jesus' body. A body that came down, became a human, grew up, and went to a cross so that sinners like you and me could be set free from sin and walk in new life. This cup represents the blood of Jesus. Blood that was shed so that sinners like us would not have to stand far away from God's presence and remove our sandals, but blood that was shed so that we could enter boldly and confidently into God's presence. This is a picture that God does keep his promises. As we eat this and as we drink the cup, we're reminding ourselves and the people around us that the God of Abraham does keep his promises. He has saved us through his son and he will return at the end of the age to judge the living and the dead so we can walk with him The Apostle Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Same way, also, he took the cup after supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. We're going to respond now by worshiping through singing. If you would stand with me, let me pray for us. And then we'll sing. Father, we praise you for being a God who saves. God, you are faithful to us. You remember your covenant. God, thank you for the new covenant that you have purchased with the blood of your son. God, would you fill us with your spirit? Would you empower us to go and be witnesses of Jesus to the ends of the earth? It's in Jesus' name that I ask, amen.